Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 420. World Cup draw instant reactions. back to the big chill podcast i'm frank joined as always with eddie so eddie i'm gonna let you choose this is kind of like a choose your own adventure would you rather start with the big news in football or would you rather start with a buzzfeed article i found about europeans and americans they both are connected because if you know what happened in the world cup draw there is this european american connection Let's kick it off with a World Cup, and then we can do the BuzzFeed article afterwards. You chose the boring adventure. <laughs> All right, break it down, Eddie. World well, Cup group draws came out yes. today. Yeah, so the, the, the draw was today for the 2022 World Cup, which is so obviously feels a bit weird because this is the first time the World Cup is not going to be in the summer. So already it feels a bit strange. We've got this 2022 World Cup. And under normal circumstances, we'd be a couple of months away from all of that kicking off. And instead, we're, what is it, seven months away, I guess? Yeah. I was talking to my parents about it. And, you know, I said, oh, World Cup draw this morning, you know, make sure you take a look. And like, oh, is it coming up? I was like, no, actually, it's not until like seven, eight months from now. But we'll know with a lot of advancement who's going to play who. (laughs) Yeah, every it kicks off the day after Thanksgiving for our American listeners. I guess that's the easiest way to remember it. Yeah. Oh, no, the just before, the USA-England game today after Thanksgiving. So, yeah, just before Thanksgiving. and uh, But no, yeah, the draw is today. My feelings on the draw, like there's way too, the draw takes way too long for starters. and Really? I see, I was watching it live. I thought it went quicker than I thought it would. I mean, it was done in like two minutes, five minutes. No, it took way longer than five minutes. <laughs> it took Really? I didn't think it took that long. Oh, it took probably 30 minutes, the full draw. Oh, I didn't think it was that long. Maybe, maybe yeah, yeah, it just, took a- it, I was so excited, Eddie, that I just didn't realize how much time was ticking away. The thing is, and I get why, so there's, I wish the, the so uh, for people who didn't watch it or aren't familiar with it, basically uh, the teams are grouped into into sort of four different pools based on their world rankings or other elements like, uh, reigning champion or host nation are automatically stuck in the first pool. And then so they draw these four teams per group and they're drawing one team from each of those sections to go into any of the groups. Eight with groups. the ru- With the eight groups. With the rules being there can only be two European teams in a group. There can only be uh, two South American teams. Or is it only Europe? I guess it's only, only Europe. Europe. Only Europe, they can have two. They can have two. two. Everyone else must have one. Yeah, from their region, which then makes it always a bit messy because they start drawing teams and it will supposed to be a team going into Group C, but then it turns out there's already two European teams and a European team's been drawn. So then all of a sudden you it shifts down to like Group H. So was there a, a lot bit... of that? I, I didn't see. It didn't seem like there was that much this year of that. I saw just it a happened. few got moved around. It happens seven or eight times, and it gets really complicated because not every team has been settled yet, and which is normal because you have the intercontinental playoffs, which is standard, but then in addition to that, you have one European playoff place, which has been delayed because of the situation in Ukraine, and so Ukraine did not play their match, their European playoff against Scotland, which meant that also the winner of that is supposed to play Wales, so you have these kind of three teams being potentially put into the world cup only one of them will actually make it but also the weird thing was it was being ho- the whole ceremony was being hosted by Jermaine Jenis which is a name that I didn't think would just be totally unfamiliar to most of the footballing world he I mean had a obviously by anyone's standards a very good career but played for Spurs and Newcastle and was a sort of decent premiership midfielder who played a handful of times for England seems to have an image of himself that is significantly higher than what he actually managed to deliver. He once famously spoke about how when he was playing for Newcastle and playing for England, 
he would find it hard because he would go away and play for England and the standard would be so high in England that his game would be raised and then he'd go back to play for Newcastle and the standard would be lower and his own performances would drop as a result. And he kind of said this in an interview, which then had Alan Shearer, who obviously all the all-time leading goal scorer in the Premier League, who was on the Newcastle team at the time, then kind of tweeted out saying, on behalf of myself and my other Newcastle colleagues, I do apologize for the fact that we weren't able to like encourage Jermaine Genus to play at the levels that he should have. <laughs> But anyway, I think I thought that was a bizarre selection for a host, for someone who basically most of the world would be totally unfamiliar with. But anyway, getting down to the, the key elements of it. Yeah, the World Cup draw was today. I think my gut reactions to it, it managed to deliver quite a few interesting ties in terms of rivalries. And yeah. I guess we'll get to that in particular in Group B. But it avoided any real group of death which normally you would yeah. you would expect there's no kind of i think all of the big nations would look at their groups and feel that they should come comfortably qualify yeah that's kind of the this the takeaway i was actually going to ask is i don't really see a true group of death this year or, or in this instance i mean there are the, there, the there closest... are groups that have two good ones but they don't have that third one that you know any of the three could equally make it yeah, I mean, the, the closest you might say to it is Group G and Group H. So I guess if we run through the groups uh, really quickly, so you have Group A, which is Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and the Netherlands. You have Group B, which is England, Iran, the USA, and then the European playoff, which could either be Wales, Scotland, or Ukraine. You have Group C, which is Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, Poland. Group D, which is France, the Intercontinental Playoff, which I actually don't know what the permutations are for that particular playoff. Denmark it's, it's and two. Australia and UAE have to play, and then the winner plays Peru. Okay. Denmark and Tunisia. Spain, the other Intercontinental Playoff. I don't know if you... Costa Rica, New Zealand. Okay. Germany and Japan. Group F, Belgium, Canada, Morocco, Croatia. Group G, Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, Cameroon. And Group H, Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, and South Korea. Group G and Group H are the probably the most difficult in some respects. I think if you're Germany and Portugal, you'd feel as if you should... I mean, sorry, Brazil and Portugal, you feel as if there's no reason you shouldn't be going through. But it might be hard to separate everyone else in the group. So in some respects, those are the toughest... Then you have yeah, Group E, where the, the standout is Germany and Spain, but I don't think they'll face much of a challenge with the other teams in their groups. I mean, I think Group F, it's unfortunate for Canada, who rarely makes the World Cup, and this year is actually having a a really good year internationally. I mean, they won their North American division and and pretty handedly. I mean, they, they beat every team in there. They beat Mexico, they beat the U.S., and they for that group, they look good and are put in a pretty tough situation here of Belgium and Croatia. See, I don't, I kind of don't know because, you know, they come into it and you think of what they're coming in, they know that they're going to have two tough teams no matter what. And I think having Croatia as the second toughest isn't that bad. But think about if they were in the U.S.'s spot. I mean, um, I would be, I would be much happier if I were Canada and having England, Iran and Wales or Scotland than having yeah. Belgium and Croatia. I Again, mean, maybe Croatia is slightly overrated because of what they did in, four years in ago. Euros yeah. 2018, but they're still a, a solid team. In the World Cup, yeah, 2018. Um, yeah, they're all right. They're definitely coming towards the end of the generation of players who are very good. I don't know. Part of me feels like if Wales make it through and you have an on-form, motivated, fit Gareth Bale leading them, I, I almost feel like they're on a par with Croatia, to be perfectly honest with you. So I don't know. I think those are kind of similar groups. I think, I think honestly, both Canada and the USA will be happy that they both can give in groups where they have a, in the, in the USA's chance, in, in, the, in the case of the USA, I think they would have taken that group all day long. 
they've managed to avoid a situation where there are two big teams in their group. And in Canada's case, yes, you could have had an easier draw, but fundamentally you go into it feeling like you have a chance and that for a team, you know, making their first World Cup appearance in a very long time, uh, that's all you could have asked for really. Because it, it could have it could have been a bit better, but it could have been a whole lot worse. Yeah. And then I you know, I think group C is is a pretty tough group. You have Argentina, Mexico, and Poland. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's always hard to assess how good Mexico are. And Poland, you know, Poland really underperformed at the Euros. They're so dependent fundamentally on one player. <laughs> and, you know, like there's a situation. And I mean, perhaps the best player in the world, but you, it really is a case of everything runs through Lewandowski. And he, I don't know, I think they're not a great team. You know, and, and in a sense, the proof of that is in the fact that they had to go through the, the playoffs to qualify uh, for the World Cup in the first place. And when you then combine that with a disappointing Euros where they, you know, didn't make it through the group stages, I think I think it's a pretty easy group for Argentina. Now, how about a team like Netherlands? How happy are they in Group A? Oh, delighted. <laughs> Yeah, I mean Sen- Senegal are 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 good, right? Um, but still, you're not talking about one of the biggest teams in the world. But Senegal are good. Ecuador, I mean, could be not tricky. Great. You, you <laughs> kind of know what you get with teams like Ecuador, which is they'll be sort of physically challenging, um, but you know, not the most skillful team in the world. And and then yeah, you've got Qatar. Qatar will be a little bit of an unknown quantity, um, and you know they been importing Brazilians for a while now to play for their national team. So they're not as bad as you might expect them to be. But yeah, I mean, that's a, and I mean, the really disappointing thing, there's no way around it in some respects because Qatar as the host nation have to be involved in the opening match. But the fact that the opening match of the world cup is going to be Qatar against Ecuador. It's not exactly the <laughs> curtain raiser that you might've hoped for, for a global event. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one match that people will be looking forward to in the group stage is a Spain-Germany match, which will be a very important because there is a chance that you could have a team like Japan kind of sneak through if they can maybe get, you know, three points off a win and then two draws. It, you might be looking at a team that if if Spain or Germany are decisive in winning a match against each other could knock the other one out. Yeah, it could happen. I would expect that it won't. Obviously, Germany kind of experienced that a World Cup ago when it was the first time they didn't make it through the group stages when in the final group match they lost to South Korea. So in a sense, you know, the presence of a major Asian nation in their group might have have a kind of flashback to bad memories, but... You know, Spain are looking quite good at the moment and they have this younger generation of players coming through and another six months of the of experience for them should put them in good stead. And then, you know, Germany, barring the 2008 World Cup, you can just pencil them in for at least a quarterfinal appearance. So I think, you know, I, I would I would imagine, yes, their their match against each other will be interesting, but they'll both be confident that they should win both of the other matches at least they shouldn't lose either of them so i think i think they they'll both comfortably qualify yeah and then you know we get right to it i think the majority of our listeners residing either in england or in the u.s are very excited for the day after thanksgiving matchup of usa versus england yeah, yeah, no, it's it's an interesting one. Um, I mean, in some ways, I kind of dread it, uh, just because. I mean, we've discussed it before, right? But America's it's kind of a lose lose game for England in some respects, just because. This, can, can can I give you what I think the example is? Yeah, England Scotland Euros. A little bit, yeah, but you're you're kind of on a hiding to nothing because if England win easily, the USA, you know, fans will just claim that. 
it's still a rebuilding process. And of course they should be losing to a team like England. If they, you know, back in the 2010 world cup, they were in the group stages against each other and, and it finished one all. And, you know, the USA kind of claim that as a victory. And, you know, it's that weird thing with the U S I find with their, their soccer fans, shall we say, where it's a mixture of supreme confidence with also consistent underdog status and they kind of flip-flop between whether or not they think they should be considered to be one of the sort of bigger players in world football. So well, when they're playing when they're playing against a big team, they'll use the excuse of punching above their weight. But then if anyone in a sort of open discussion claims that the USA are a sort of second tier or a third tier nation, they'll get really upset and try and point to world rankings or overall yeah. international consistency. It's a great way to live. Believe you're yeah. the best, but then when things don't work out your way, just say, hey, we're the underdog. We weren't expected to win. <laughs> it's a great yeah, way yeah. to never really be truly disappointed. <laughs> no, I mean, aside from England just like absolutely thrashing them, it's kind of a no-lose situation. And, you know, the, the USA do have talented players. I would expect England to be able to comfortably beat them. Um, and it might be, you know, an important match depending on how the rest of that group plays out because... It is a situation where, you know, you could get second place in that group, you know, and it's always tough. We, we kind of, we, we live through this in the Euros, right, with England, where people are looking at the various permutations and trying to figure out whether it's better to win the group or finish second. And fundamentally, I think you just try and win every match. But, uh, you know, it's, England will be very happy with the group that they've been hand, with dealt but, I mean, it's it's a fascinating group in the sense that, obviously, Iran against the USA is an interesting one in terms of the sort of geopolitical history between those two nations. Even England, Iran, kind of interesting. Then you have England, USA. Then any other nation that makes it through from that European playoff is kind of interesting. If you think about, obviously, from a British standpoint, if it's Wales or Scotland playing England, and even... Scotland, USA kind of draws up, you know, there's so many Scottish people in America that you, you would have that battle being fought. And then, you know, Ukraine's presence in a group with USA and England would, would still be interesting. So I, I think the storylines out of Group B, and that's not just being biased because England are involved, but the storylines out of Group B are the most interesting, even if the, the actual quality of the teams involved isn't necessarily the highest. So I, I know it's, I guess, uh, not in the best to look forward, but just to give our listeners an idea, the winners of Group B, which is the England-US group, would play the runners-up from Group A, which is the Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, Netherlands. And then the winner of Group A would play the runner-up from Group B. So basically one will play two and two will play one of Group A and B. So if you were to kind of project and play things out as you think they might, England would likely be looking at a matchup against Senegal and the U.S. would likely be looking up at a matchup against the Netherlands if the U.S. were to to get that second spot in advance. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, England's path to the final already, you know, you have, it only took about 15 minutes for articles to come out and sort of plotting the path to the final one way or the other, which is just- I won't go deeper than that. I won't go deeper than the first round. <laughs> well, I mean, the only interesting thing, I think going beyond the second round, the quarterfinals is is just insane, just because, you know, there's so many factors involved and, and you know, you can narrow it down to, at best, maybe saying could be any of these four teams in the semifinal. You sort of get to that situation. I think the the uh, likely well, do you want path, me to go one one round? Well, the, the like one more. I mean, the likely path is France the following yes. round. Yeah. So assuming that would be everything, England, if they won, yeah, if everything play. went, to, yeah, if everything went to form through the group stages and then through the last sixteen ties, you would imagine it will be England, France in the in the quarterfinals, which is a big tie and that, that's not a ideal. very tough draw. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's the arguments are always the same. If you want to win the World Cup, you know, I, I, we kind of went through this, you know, in the Euros. If you want to win the World Cup, you're going to have to beat the best teams in the world. And, and 
there's no point going into a World Cup and claiming to have aspirations of winning it, but then being afraid of playing some of the bigger teams. So, you know, yes, you don't want to have a path to the final where it's literally every good team standing in your way. That's not ideal just because it does make it tougher and more physically and mentally draining. But to get to a quarterfinal and have to play one of the biggest nations, it's sort of to be expected. So, you know, realistically to win the World Cup, you're going to have to beat probably three big teams along the way. The exception to that was England in 2018 when they had that relatively easy path to the final and, you know, fell at the last hurdle against Croatia. But, I, you know, England should be happy. The group stages should be should give them a chance to settle into the tournament to maybe rotate the squad a little bit in the group stages themselves and then sort of be primed for the knockout stages. I think I think that's everything you'd ask for. I will say I think my big fear from an English perspective is, and people have been talking about it because, you know, since t- the beginning of 2021, England haven't lost a game. The only time they've lost, I mean – Penalties aside against Italy, but they've not lost in 90 minutes. They've not lost a single match. And, you know, the people have been making a big deal about that level of consistency. I have no doubts that England are very good now at beating teams that they are better than. They have, Gareth Southgate has that team working super efficiently at doing that. My question is, can they beat teams that are as good as them or potentially slightly better. So far, we've not seen any evidence of that in when it matters. But so, I, am, I have no fears from the group. So I guess quickly and succinctly, where is your Gareth Southgate barometer right now? Because for, for, our, for our listeners who are new to the podcast, Eddie has, was very, very critical of Southgate's abilities going into the Euros and did not think he was doing the best job and that Eddie could have outperformed him if put in that same managerial role. Yeah, I mean, whatever you whatever you just do a summary, like, summary of the opinions, it makes it doesn't sound quite right. I mean, <laughs> it is completely accurate. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, for new listeners, my opinion on Gareth Southgate is what he's managed to do in terms of repairing England's image and to sort of help rebuild the link between the the players and the fans and the nation has been excellent. And in terms of, you know, being the leader of a team through a very difficult period in terms of the pandemic and, you know, sort of some racial issues that were at the forefront of discussions, obviously, in the world of sport over the last couple of years, I feel the example that he and the rest of the squad under his leadership have been able to set has been extremely good. And in many ways that it's far more meaningful than anything they're able to do on the pitch. That being said, he has an incredibly talented group of attacking players at his disposal. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an open secret that basically he has gone, he and his team have run, you know, an analysis of, what types of teams win major tournaments and fundamentally they've worked out that the key to winning a major tournament is being defensively solid. And that if you look back historically through world cups and euros, the team that concedes the fewest number of goals tends to win the tournament. So they kind of set their stalls out to be difficult to beat versus going out to actually win games. And my problem with that is that they have been in situations where showing a little bit more attacking intent would probably have resulted in them winning, particularly in the Croatia. I mean, when you talk about they've lost in two major matches in the case of Croatia and Italy from winning, you know, scoring early goals early, in, both, yeah. in both times and then kind of sitting back and trying and not really trying to kill a game off. Yeah. And in, and particularly in that a game against Italy in the final, they really had Italy rocking in those first 20 minutes. And it was yeah. it was the opportunity to do that. And, you know, he couldn't kind of get out of his own way, I think. And so I think that's the that's my criticism. And it was obviously very frustrated in the post. So where's the barometer now? 
I mean, I think we'll probably see something very similar play out. I'm not expecting anyone to win the World Cup. I think they're a very talented team. I think they have pretty much as good of a chance as anyone, but I would be very surprised if they actually managed to get over the line. So I expect them to get to the quarterfinals. If they're playing France, it's a tough match. Give them a chance of winning. You know, I think it's a 50-50. It's a coin toss. And, you know, maybe they'll surprise me and win it. I won't be upset. If they lose to a good team and they've played well, then I'm not going to be upset about it. If they lose to France and it's, you know, it's a good match and they've sort of... But if they go, if they play against France in the quarterfinals and they just sit back and try and absorb pressure in France, gradually pick them apart and score a couple of goals and win comfortably, then I'll be upset. But going into, you know, I, I kind of feel like this should be Gareth Southgate's last major tournament. And unless he wins and then to be perfectly honest if i were him if you win you step aside anyway and end on a high but <laughs> if he wins if he doesn't win i think he'd say that he's he's done his job in in putting england back on course and that there's a very talented generation of players coming through and that maybe a slightly more attacking manager would be suitable that would be my feeling but who knows should be interesting and obviously england been in the you know speaking of that gareth southgate and and kind of repairing the image of the england team that was not for the same reasons but it was headline news this week obviously because harry Maguire was booed during his latest england performance which is just pretty bizarre i mean he's been awful for manchester united over the last few months but he's never been bad for england and so i don't know why England fans, now many of whom may be Manchester United supporters, but you save that booing for when he's playing for the team he's letting down. Don't boo him just everywhere he goes. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense to me. And, you know, I think there's, I'm not the biggest Harry Maguire fan. I mean, he has been absolutely terrible for Manchester United. I mean, it's embarrassing. And I'd say there's, I, I think he will be starting for England in the World Cup just because of the fact that Southgate is very loyal to his players and Maguire has never let him down and has been good at major tournaments. But I think in the not too distant future, he might end up losing his England spot, but you know, you can't boo him for things he's done elsewhere. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Now, are, are we sure his middle name is not Will Smith? Because that seems to be a common trend <laughs> among among sports is people named Will Smith are just getting booed at all the events they're participating in, which I have to say, I think is actually quite funny. And I hope that the athlete sees it as humorous and doesn't get offended and just sees it as a joke. Yeah, I think if you're named Will Smith, you and you're getting like you're, you're on the end, you know, the receiving end of a few jokes and maybe a little bit of playful abuse this week i think you would take it you would know coming into it that because there must have been plenty of times in the past where you sort of benefited from having the name will smith and you probably got a little bit of a cool bonus you know from having it and so look this is the downside if you're ever going to you know have the same name as a celebrity your your stock is going to rise and fall a little bit along with theirs but yeah, now transition us on. You know, I know all of our loyal BuzzFeed fans will be desperately waiting for that article that you were, you know, referred that to tease. at the beginning. In yeah, classic beginning. BuzzFeed fashion. <laughs> yeah, they will have skipped ahead. We've pro- we've done pretty much a perfect 30 minutes to kick things off and they can just I've skip ahead halfway through the episode. Clickbaited and- everyone to get right to our BuzzFeed section. So I thought this was just very fitting because of the... Like I said, the mouth-watering day after Thanksgiving USA England matchup. It is thir- <laughs> we won't go through all of them, but thirty-one things about European culture that shock American tourists almost every time. Number one, it's it's just, it's just I like this because it just makes Americans look so dumb and gross, and maybe some of the tourists are, but I don't think. All Americans are thinking this as if as what they're saying. So, the but first isn't one, that? But isn't this part of the? That's the beauty of an article like this, right? Yeah, it is. One of the, one of them is to pick up on a few things that do genuinely surprise people, 
which is interesting for both Americans and Europeans. One of them is to then make Americans sound kind of dumb, which is then interesting to the Europeans reading the article. And then some of the points will make Europeans sound a little bit dumb, which is then interesting to the Americans. So you kind of like, you satisfy everyone over the course of the list. Yeah. Okay. One, how old a lot of the cities are. People are still living in buildings older than the U.S. has been around. (laughs) You see, as stupid as that sounds, I remember when I was studying in Sweden and the only kind of friends that I really had there were Australians who were also studying abroad. And the number of times we would just be going, you know, we traveled to a few other European countries together. They visited me in Paris as well. And the number of times they would stop and ask me, like when they were in Paris with me, they would be like, oh, what's that church? And I would just have no idea because it would just be a, you know, like a random church in Paris, yeah. like none of the notable churches. And I would say, I don't really know. Then we kind of look it up and they go, oh my God, it was built in 1548. It's older than our country, you know, and they actually were, so not even limiting that to Americans. They actually, I watched them probably 10 to 15 times process that in their minds that they were just seeing kind of relatively banal, normal building that was older than their entire country. So as stupid as it sounds at that point, I actually do think for a few people that is a little bit of a, you know, moment where they have to try and process it. Yeah. I think some of the cooler ones though are like when you go to pubs in England that are older than America's been existed and you're sitting in a pub drinking in in a place that uh, has been there for longer than the U S but okay. Here's another one, Eddie. You'll love this one. Europeans dress up for the day. Y'all don't wear athletic shorts and tennis shoes. Like just going to the store, y'all got to dress up decent enough. <laughs> okay. The wording. The I'm, wording reading it, I'm reading No, it no, I know. I know you are. Um, That's yeah, from I'm... Amateur Paperboy 30. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What a, what a reputable source. I mean, I guess it's true overall. How European. can you be, wait, time out. How can you be an amateur paperboy? Are you just not getting paid? Are you just buying newspapers and then delivering to people for free? You're just losing money? Yeah. I actually think that's a pretty good uh, name. But um, yeah, I mean, overall, I think that's true. You do see a lot less athletic wear uh, in certain, uh, particularly in continental Europe versus the US. I mean, the UK a little bit closer to the US in that respect, but Definitely. I mean, I do think you can, I mean, you can walk around a European city and pick out Americans pretty easily. Like you can spot them just based on the way that they dress. The shoes are often a big giveaway. I mean, that's without a doubt. How about this one? I was surprised by how many people still smoke cigarettes and how common it was to have people smoking in outdoor restaurants and bars. Yeah. That's a real one. That is one I think if you're American and you go to Europe for the first time, I think you look around and you're just like, wow, so many people smoke, you know, like it's, it is pretty crazy. Yeah. It's definitely reducing over time, but sure, it's, it's, it's way higher than most American cities. I'll never forget the first time I was at a bar and I walked erroneously into like a smoking room and almost died when I walked into that room because it's just like 15 people in in the room the size of like a bathroom just chain smoking. Well, yeah, I mean, it, to me, it kind of, you know, like, I mean, here smoking indoors, right, was only, I think, 2008 was when that was stopped. So like when I first started, like, it's hard for me to think back on, but when I was a teenager going to bars and stuff, everyone's, you know, people were smoking indoors. No one was going outside to smoke. And then when I first started working in bars when I was in university, you people were smoking. And I mean, it's funny to think, I think if I look back on the you know several years in which I worked in bars, one of the, the job that changed the most was the fact that bef- when I first started at the end of the shift, one of the most tedious tasks was just sweeping the floors to get cigarette butts off. Whereas, you know, that never happened at the end of my bartending career, shall we say. But I mean, the first couple of years, that was like one of the big tasks. That's so and gross. It, and it was, you know, sometimes thousands of cigarette butts if you had a packed bar <laughs> over the course, you know, like hours of people smoking. Hold on your butts. 
as Samuel Jackson would say. All right, how about this one, Eddie? By Dead Chick on a Stick. <laughs> <laughs> You're just so chick. easily, easily amused by like Twitter and Reddit handles. Yeah. Dead Chick on a Stick says, every apartment has an electric bath towel warmer. It's pretty standard. That was one that I noticed. That yeah. doesn't exist in America. I wouldn't say every apartment, but you, m- most. A lot. A yeah. lot. Yeah. 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 My mother liked it so much that she wanted to get one in, in her house. But they're very inconvenient to buy in the U.S. because <laughs> no one has them. Yeah. Here we go, Eddie. This is the one you might like by Craig Santiago. You can drink a beer anywhere, anytime. I woke up in Berlin and bought a bottle of beer at a small breakfast stand in a park. It was like 6 a.m. My first concern is why the hell is Craig Santiago waking up at 6 a.m. in Berlin? <laughs> what the fuck's park. wrong with that guy? What kind of vacation is that? <laughs> um, I mean, again, that's not totally true, right? Like there aren't always 24-hour liquor and alcohol availability. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, it's definitely way more open. And I mean, people love to talk about how the fact, oh, you can buy a, a beer in a McDonald's and stuff. You know, that's one of those things that sometimes blows Americans' minds. Um, I, I definitely think the concept of walking around with alcohol, which obviously sometimes in the U.S. is severely frowned upon. Also, the idea of having an open container of alcohol in a car, which you can't do in the U.S., right? But in, you know, most European countries, at least as far as I'm aware, being a passenger drinking in a car is not an issue. Obviously, drink driving is a different matter altogether. But the idea of someone in the back seat sitting with an open can of beer and, and sipping on it is not going to get you in trouble. I, I remember, go, I mean, going back to the U.S. for the first time for me, and I hopped into a car with an open beer, and that's kind of blew everyone else's mind. <laughs> That I was the next thing you knew, you were being bailed out. <laughs> no, but you know, to me, like, didn't even I didn't even think twice. It's, it was such a normal activity for me that as a passenger, I'm not saying as a driver, but that as a passenger, if you were going somewhere and you know you're at your house and you're having beers and then you're going like to another party or something, you would just get in a car with beers and drink them. Uh, like it's it, that that bit was strange for me. Here's one I think we've all encountered that I think is worse off in Europe. Personal bubbles are very different. It shocks you at first and you feel sort of claustrophobic, but then you get used to it. Ironically, that's from Stinker Bell, which she might not be the best one to be claustrophobic around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, th- I do think there's a difference in levels of respect for kind of personal space. Especially on transit. I don't know how many times in the summer that I've been like bumped up against someone who's like sweating profusely. It's quite unpleasant. That part is very unpleasant. I think some of that's just city versus uh, like, you know, suburban or rural lifestyle. But throw in the lack of deodorant and it makes it a little grosser. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's usually a lack of deodorant. Okay. Let's bust one more myth, Eddie. This is, um, from Hutsut Ralston. The ground floor is not the first floor. It's floor zero. Is that true, Eddie? I mean, I don't think anyone would ever call it floor zero. But yeah, if you said ground, the first floor is one floor up. So if I said I'm living on the first floor in the US, that would mean I'm on the ground floor. Yeah. But here there would be this distinction that ground floor is ground floor. First floor is floor number one which is one floor above ground floor. I mean, Interesting. if you said I live on ground, on f- like ground, like f- floor zero, <laughs> I think that would confuse people. But the idea of a ground floor or, you know, whatever it is, however you want to say that, that's, I mean, that's true. If I said to someone, like in my apartment building, I live on the second floor, I would always tell people I live in America, it would be the third floor. Actually, I got one more for you, Eddie. I forgot about this one because I don't know if I don't know if I agree with it. From Cincy Bono Seven, complete privacy when taking a dump in a public restroom. It was hard to come back home just from that. I think it's the opposite. I, I feel European. I I don't know either. I feel like European bathrooms are a lot more. First off, they're they're both sexes, 
which as an American, I think kind of shocks I mean, me. whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not always true. It's a lot more common than like never in the U.S. is there like you go into the bathroom and then there's just separate stalls that either sex can use. That's really rare in Europe. I don't think so. I mean, it is. I'm struggling to think of a place a I go. unisex bathroom? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you go to VDs every day. The first, the, op, the top floor of VDs is a unisex bathroom. Hey, I, I don't go to VD every day. VD is the exception on the on their on their on the top floor. The ground, the the downstairs is separate. Downstairs, but I mean, is that's the only bar I go to where there's any ever a moment where it's somewhat unisex. And even that, it's not really unisex. It's just that. You kind of the the it's a shared uh, sink, I would say is the way of just so you're kind of like queuing together, but you're not actually going into the same section. Yeah. But aside from that, I mean restaurants and st- if you're in but a what's tiny this restaurant, complete privacy when taking so a dump I, in a public restroom. I mean, I don't know, I don't know why that's one you've selected, but I think probably what he's referring to, which is true, is that in the U.S. commonly, which is very weird. The bathroom stalls are not, they to don't the go all the, way, all the way to the ground. They leave. And all the way up. Yeah. So you, you are kind of like somewhat visible when okay. you're in the bathroom. Whereas in Europe, normally most bathroom stalls are full doors or at least very, you know, you might see the very bottom of someone's feet or something, but like very, only a small portion of you is visible. So I guess from a privacy standpoint, you'd feel a little bit more enclosed and, and separated maybe those are the hard-hitting questions people really wanted us to tackle on this episode hey what about uh pub san michelle that's also a shared bathroom you go there every day i have not been to pub san michelle <laughs> in a week <laughs> I, no i would say at least i i mean before the pandemic for sure i would say Do it's you- do you think that was ground zero for France? <laughs> well, I would say maybe. I mean, Vasilis is banned from Pub Saint Michel now, so um, it's not a place we go to anymore. But I, th- I think I probably haven't been there for four years. Wow. Yeah, it's been a long time, wow. and based on the fact that Vasilis is banned, I, I probably will never go to Pub Saint Michel again in my life. I was going to say no free ads, but apparently it sounds like we're not going to give them one anyway. So. <laughs> Don't go. <laughs> I mean, if the ad is, I'm not going there anymore, maybe that's an encouragement. For some listeners, that's probably an encouragement. For others, maybe not. If you're trying well, to meet me on a night out in Paris, don't go to Pub Saint Michel. Most men and women studying abroad in the U.S. now can find comfort that they can go to a pub that Vasilis cannot be in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you want some excitement? It's a place to go. Now, speaking of Americans who might have a little bit more time to travel abroad and explore Europe in the least surprising, surprising news of a surprising NFL offseason, Bruce Arians decided to retire. You're trying to process what I just said. A lot of surprising in there. Yeah, it was intentional, but uh, yeah, Bruce Arians has stepped down well, retired and stepped down as head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He is now a senior football consultant or something like that. I can't remember what his official title is he's taken on. Yeah, but... he's a senior, all right. <laughs> Your obsession with his age is so – this is – you've managed to cue it up nicely, but this is a discussion that we have. You are obsessed with how old he is and with well, the fact that he – It's also – he one, he's – well, he was the third oldest NFL coach, but he also was the oldest to ever get a starting head coaching position. He's only been a head coach for like eight years. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I am he's familiar like, with that He's like 95. <laughs> no, he's 69. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that was always surprising was when he won the Super Bowl and his mother was in attendance. That was That bit was surprising. But, you know, I mean, he was, what, 67, I guess, at that time, so... It's not unheard of, obviously, to be Yeah, she was 74, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, I mean, look, if you recall, if we go back, not 
in any way going to say I'm, I called it, nor am I going to say that I w- it was an, a totally unique and original position. But, but if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Tom Brady coming back and I talked about the fact that this was clearly just a power move to achieve one of two things, which was either to get a trade away or to get Bruce Arians fired, I think it is clear now that it was very much to achieve one of those two things. And while Bruce Arians was not fired, I'm sure conversations took place where it was made clear that maybe he needed to step aside and that there was a nice cushy position waiting for him if he, you know, decided to do so himself. And the fact that they, he did it at such a bizarre time, the very end of March, the fact that he did it, he waited a couple of weeks after Tom Brady unretiring to kind of put a little bit of distance between those two decisions to try and make it seem as if they weren't linked to each other. I think that bit's clear. And then when you hear his statement about why he decided to retire at this particular moment in time, which was he has some health concerns, which is why he wasn't actually a play caller a lot of the times because he was trying to delegate some of the stress of being a football coach, basically, because he and his wife had had conversations where they were genuinely concerned that he might die on the side of the field in a game. In addition to that, the fact that Tom, he says that Tom Brady came back made him more comfortable that he was sort of handing over the keys to a, you know, a potential Todd Super Balls. Bowl winning. Yeah, to, but to a potential Super Bowl winning team. You have the greatest quarterback of all time, so the transition is a little bit easier. That logic makes a little bit of sense. And then the other argument was that he'd achieved, but in winning the Super Bowl, and in particular he mentioned with his mother in attendance, he'd kind of achieved everything he wanted to do. The bit that's weird about that is, if you really felt that way, why didn't you retire a year ago after winning the Super Bowl? To wait the 12 months to have this awkward year with Tom Brady where all of the news came out about the fact that the two of you weren't really getting along to not retire after the season was over, to not retire after Tom Brady retired, to wait until Tom Brady came back, and then a couple of weeks later retire. Everything points to me and points in the direction for me that this was part of the goal of Tom Brady pretending to retire for three weeks. Yeah, I don't know. I'm torn because we don't know if it actually worked, right? I mean, there could be... It could have happened that Brady said he's retiring and then they contacted him and said, hey, what will it take to get you back? And he said, you got to get rid of Arians or Arians has to retire. And then they said, OK, we'll we'll take care of it. Just come back. And then he comes back. And then that's already kind of in the works that Arian is kind of not being forced to retire, but very strongly, can you make sure? strongly can suggested. You, can you just make sure you call him Arians and not Arian to imply that he's not just part of <laughs> sort of preferred racial group (laughs) yeah so i i mean maybe that is what happened i don't know um but yeah it's it's a little strange move i don't really i don't know i mean i think at the end of the day you you touched on it that he wasn't calling any of the plays he was leaving that up to both his coordinators in in leftwich and todd bowles so not much is changing there, except now one of them has to step up and do the additional duties of overseeing the team. But what would have been really neat is if Brian uh, Byron Leftwich had gotten a position as a head coach and then Bowles was promoted to head coach and you just had Tom Brady be player slash offensive coordinator. That would have been awesome. Wait, hold on. <laughs> Wait, you just said both of them promoted to head coach. Yeah, so if, if Byron Leftwich had taken a head coaching position somewhere else. So he was interviewed okay. for like three or four No, no, positions. no, okay. No, it's just you said if yeah, yeah. Leftwich had become head coach and then Bowles had become head coach. If Leftwich had left to be head to coach become, yeah. and then Bowles had been promoted to head coach, it would have been neat to have Tom Brady as the offensive coordinator player coach. Yeah, I mean, he kind of is that in everything but name, right? But um, yeah, I don't know. To me, it's clear that this was obviously the goal. And and the fact that there were persistent rumors that a move to the Dolphins was still a possibility for Tom Brady even at that stage, to me, that feels as if that was the Brady camp just reminding 
everyone at the Buccaneers that, you know what, I said I'm back, but I could still leave. And so I think that was, I bet you all of those trade rumors are going to be well and truly gone for the next 12 months. So I, I, it feels very transparent to me, but yeah. And I guess the indication that of how little this matters is the betting market did not shift at all with the announcement of his retirement. <laughs> I mean, is there a head coach leaving aside from Bill Belichick or maybe Andy Reid? where you think it would significantly alter McVay? Maybe. I mean, now this year, yes, but if you'd said last year, I'd say no. But just because of the fact that they're coming off of winning a Super Bowl, I feel like that would be more... Shanahan? Um, I don't think it would alter the Niners' Super Bowl odds. I think it would... And I'm making a distinction here. I'm not saying that there aren't head coaches who could leave where it would impact their team's actual chances of winning the Super Bowl. I think there's a lot of head coaches that would fall into that category. What I mean is from a betting perspective, I don't know how many where the market would react and go, oh my God, no, there's no more, you know, Pete Carroll in Seattle. That must mean that, you know, I think that's... I think the Giants' odds went up when Joe Judge got fired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he called called like QB sneaks on third and 12. So that's... (laughs) (laughs) that's not surprising. You know what else isn't surprising, Eddie? The criminal woes of Hope Solo. (laughs) Oh, I haven't, I haven't seen anything about this. Yes. Hope Solo, I believe last night or, uh, was arrested on DWI and misdemeanor child abuse charges for having children in the car while potentially driving while intoxicated. Uh, and at this point, if found guilty, she there's a very high likelihood she will spend time behind bars because this is not her first criminal offense. No. And, and look, I mean, the only thing with Hope Solo, right, was kind of similar in a sense to some of the topics we touched on with the Will Smith incident at the Oscars. Sometimes it can expose some of the inconsistencies within the media and certain groups where their willingness to forgive Hope Solo versus the, uh, you know, like, for example, when you think of, and not to ever compare the, you know, the dynamics between men and women and, and, you know, like it's a, it's obviously a very complicated issue, but if you think of the level of outrage surrounding, say, Deshaun Watson and just the, everyone deciding, you know, to give up season tickets and, and I'm not saying that they're wrong. But versus, you know, Hope Solo can be kind of welcomed back into the, you know, the U.S. women's national team fold at different moments in time, even though they're sort of, you know, convicted of previously convicted of assault and kind of all, all ver- you know, various things hanging over her. There, it just shows that, you know, anyone trying to argue that there's a black and white interpretation of, you know, if you've done something wrong you no longer have a place at the table. That clearly is not the case. But again, similar to the Will Smith conversations we got into, they are very complex and nuanced, and it would take hours to try and break down, to give a true indication of how I feel about where you know, where I fall on, on various topics within those debates. Well, on a lighter note, Eddie, when we did discuss the Will Smith situation, we likened it to the Evander Holyfield, Mike Tyson fiasco. And you'll be happy to note that I heard on another podcast that Bill Simmons also used that same analogy. So Eddie, you are, we are on the same wavelength <laughs> as yeah. your arch nemesis. <laughs> yeah. Which, Hey, it's not the worst, right? One of the biggest sports podcasts out there. So to be hitting the same talking points is not necessarily a bad thing, but. So he was no, talking li- to Jimmy Kimmel at the time about it. They did like a kind of yeah. like a instant reaction. In that scenario, Eddie, who's who? Are you the Bill Simmons and I'm the Jimmy Kimmel? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess. I guess, yeah. Which one's the better one to be? Um, I mean, out of the two, I prefer Bill Simmons. Like, I'm, 
I find Jimmy Kimmel tiresome at this point, just because, and again, it's not because I disagree with any of his politics, because I think he and I fundamentally agree on every political issue. It's just the relentless in, inclusion of his politics into unfunny jokes and monologues. That bit is just annoying to me. Like, so then maybe you're, you're Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> maybe. Well, I think I'm a mixture. I think you're no one in that dynamic. I think that's just me talking to myself and I'm playing both parts at different moments in time. But, but yeah, I am a big believer in sometimes I'm tuning into something to completely shut off from, you know, political discourse or more complicated issues in the world. And I don't need it to constantly come up. But again, I'm fine with people protesting, just to make that clear. <laughs> no, going to have listeners bombarding us for the fact that I'm I'm kind of shifting into some like alt-right positions on political topics. But it's... Yeah, you're going from Bill Simmons to Joe Rogan very quickly. Yeah, who would I rather be there? That's... Uh... I think that's I saw pretty... Joe Rogan pretty super, super critical of Will Smith. I did listen to his take on it. He was very critical of the violence that was on display at the Oscars. <laughs> Going for Joe Rogan. Is, is a... <laughs> and look, I can understand. Again, I'm fine with the fact that there is obviously a huge difference between voluntarily getting in a ring and fighting someone in a kind of organized combat versus assaulting someone in a public space. But it's just interesting because I have seen videos of Joe Rogan being kind of physical with like hecklers and fans and stuff at different moments in time most of it occurring quite a bit of time ago before he was super super famous but still and look people can change but it's just always the fact that there was no acknowledgement on his part that maybe at times in his life he has probably crossed those boundaries as well again not in the context of the oscars and when you know you're probably about to receive one of the biggest awards in the world i think that's that again is the is the real issue. But to follow up with another topic we mentioned on a recent episode, and another group of people I was critical of, don't know if you saw, but the St. Peter's head coach Shaheen Holloway is cashed now cashed out. Yep, cashed out. I love it. I fucking love it. Spend all that time telling us about how unique the group was and how nobody believed in us and the incredible things that they could achieve together and literally knocked out. Tournament isn't even over. Tournament isn't even over yet. And he's already jumped ship. You'd think you'd at least let the dust settle on the season. Just say to Seton Hall, hey, can we wait for the the team to lift the you know the championship trophy? Before I get announced as a new head coach? Nope. No, no. Lost on lost on Sunday, head coach of another team on Tuesday. Amazing. And again, I don't blame him because you do have to strike while the iron is hot. And his stock at the moment is as high as it's probably ever going to be. So take the bigger job. Yeah. Because there's every chance you decide, no, I'm going to stick it out with St. Peter's again. And I really feel that this is a special group. And next year you don't even make the tournament and everyone's forgotten who you were. So I, I understand why he's made the move. It just makes me laugh that we had to listen to him talk about how special the group was and how unique they were and how they weren't underdogs and how they were going to prove everyone wrong and literally within 48 hours, which does, it means two things, right? It means that he and Seton Hall did not start speaking to each other just after the tournament was over because there is no way all of the agreements, you know what I mean? Like they did not lose. And in the space of 48 hours, he was able to decide if he wanted to go, agree to a contract, go through all of those negotiations. So conversations about him leaving took place before St. Peter was even knocked out. I, I, I just love the move though. Like talk, talk up this whole uniqueness about this team and this and that. And then you jump ship. 11 miles away it's like it's as if someone's like hey you can you can probably make something of, of this run you know like what do you think oh yeah let me look into that let me go to the nearest university and see if they'll offer me more money and yep seton hall did <laughs> yeah i mean the only thing better than that right was when spain got, had to sack their manager when he kind of mid-tournament agreed to 
uh, if you remember back during the 2018 World Cup, when he announced that he was going to be sort of on the eve of the kickoff of the tournament of uh, the 2018 World Cup, he uh, agreed to become the next Real Madrid manager. And then they decided that they were going to get rid of him because they didn't want to have this sort of lame duck manager in charge for a major tournament. But, but yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a great move on his part. He is a former Seton Hall player. So yeah. again, it makes, it makes sense, but I don't blame him. I would have done exactly the same thing. Oh, I, I, I just, yeah. I, I have nothing really bad to say about it. It's just great. You have to, but I would respect it more if he called the sellout for the sellout. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> I think for me too, I just think it, it does bother me that the tournament's not even over. Well, it like, is for them. <laughs> no, I, I know, but you know what I mean? The tournament's not even over. If you had at least signed the contract if you need to, but then maybe you say, hey, can we just not announce this until next Thursday? Like, let's let the tournament wrap up. Let's let all of the, you know, celebrations on the team that wins take place. And then next Thursday when college baseball is kind of coming to the end of the news cycle, we'll just throw out that I've changed jobs. Anything yeah. else uh, caught your eye in sport this week? Well, maybe I'll just have to start saying more controversial things and maybe something will go viral. And then the first time it goes viral, Eddie, I'm just jumping ship and I'm going to a bigger podcast. <laughs> you say that, but every time anything controversial comes up, you want to edit it out. So you're <laughs> going to have to say the controversial thing and then be willing to stand by it. That's going to be the tough, <laughs> the tough part. I mean... Yeah, it's it's not an impossibility. I I don't know. You've also got to be willing to view the upgrade of going to a different podcast. If the if the reason why they're going to hire you is because you said something controversial, then that is going to be a certain type of podcast you end up going to. Yeah. I mean, if you want to go to Barstool, I guess that's the only move. Yeah, and then the other thing too, I guess, is then like you have to play that card all the time, and I can't be on. Like Stephen A. Smith. I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw Stephen A. Smith even today on Twitter was saying that people, that English people were bombarding him with Twitter messages telling him to stay away from their sport. Clearly made up because there's not that many English people who even know who Stephen A. Smith is. So, you know, it's the I do love it as a move that he's just creating an enemy that does not exist. He's sort of like straw manning himself almost, but I do like it as oh, all these people are telling me not to talk about soccer. I'm going to talk about soccer even more. It's like, I'm sure no one's asked you to stop talking about soccer. I think people ask you to stop talking about everything. I think that <laughs> people ask you to stop talking. That's different. Yeah. That bit happens, but I don't think it's tied to a particular sport. That's like if an alcoholic walks into a bar and is like, everyone keeps telling me to stop drinking Budweiser. <laughs> so I'm going to drink more Budweiser. It's like, no, Johnny, I think everyone's telling you to stop drinking because you've ruined your life. <laughs> Do have a uh, TV show recommendation to make. Oh. What do you got? I don't know. It's a rare, uh, rare win, in my opinion, for uh, Apple TV as well. Severance. Severance. It's pretty good. Great show. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd say great, but it's pretty good. It's enjoyable. It's worth a watch. In terms it's of very, Apple TV. Well, that's saying nothing. I mean, that's genuinely <laughs> most of Apple TV is I'd I'd rather watch someone take have an external camera on, you know, American bathroom stalls. That would be more interesting than most of the things. Where there's no Apple privacy TV. to take a dump. No. <laughs> Unlike those European ones. <laughs> I mean, even on a European stall, and it was just a closed door. I'd find that more entertaining than than most things on Apple TV, which has basically lived exclusively off the success of Ted Lasso, and and obviously from a movie standpoint, the you know they obviously had a success in the Oscars, but I, I yeah, I Severance is good. Yeah, it, I've watched the very, first two episodes. It's very original. I'll give it that. It is, which is rare these days. You always feel like when you're watching, even when you're watching something good, that it is a good version of something you've seen before. This is at least a very unique 
television show. My concern for some people who might watch it and get angry that we that you've recommended it is that it's a little slow and deliberate in some of the scenes. So I mean, I've only seen the first two episodes, so I'll just give one example. In the first episode, he's like walking down a hallway and it's about a minute and a half of him walking down the hallway to his desk. And that doesn't bother me, but I can see other people being like, oh my God, what is like, I get it already. Get over this. Yeah, it's it, no, it's definitely slow. And I think it's intentionally slow because yes. that serves yes. a purpose in terms yeah. of the world it's trying to create. Yes. But yeah, no, it is, it's not a fast pace. I mean, I haven't, I guess I'm probably five episodes in. It's it's not fast paced. Like, not a lot happens really in an episode. But and then for people unfamiliar, basically the premise of the show is that you it's a world in which there is the option of having this uh, sort of implant in your brain that then separates your work life from your personal life, so that when you then get into work you everything outside of work is sort of wiped from your your brain is sort of split in two so that your personality your existence and everything is totally separated so you have no recollection of anything outside of work when you're in work and then as soon as you leave work you have no recollection of anything to do with work itself it's an interesting concept i mean i don't know i guess the question i'd ask if you have that as an option would you do it no, I don't think so. Um, you know, I don't think I have that terrible of a outside work life or in work life that I'd want to completely separate them and forget about them. But here's the thing is, to me, what's interesting is I don't know if necessarily you'd have to have a bad outside life or a bad work life to motivate you to do either. The attraction for me might be is that like cutting off the distractions of anything from outside work could just lead to a ton of efficiency at work. So you could just, and then at the same time, yes. And that, and then yes, knowing that as soon as you stepped away from work, you are free from any of the like stress or the thoughts. So so you're never like going out on the weekend, but thinking, Oh God, I got a big presentation to do on Monday or man work with, I really hate that guy I work with. You're have that full freedom to enjoy. So on the face of things, I can see why it would be potentially good. I can see all these millennial entrepreneurs who very much dislike it because, you know, they're in that 23-hour grind to to be the best. And they can't separate their work because their work is their life. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. No, if, you're, if your Gary V doesn't work. I mean, Gary V would just never leave. There would be no severance. He would just be, he would just, he wouldn't know that he had the implant because he would just stay at work all time, all the time. He would tell you that he did. He would like make up that last weekend he was away for 72 hours and completely forgot about work during that time. But there would be a camera showing the fact that he had just sat at his desk the whole time. All right. Well, with that recommendation of a TV show, I think we should call it a, call it a podcast and let, let the listeners go out and watch severance and maybe shoot us some shows that we should be watching yeah Yeah. talk to you later see ya cheerio